First off, I am so proud of you for being able to read a clock and reminding yourself to set it back and all that fun stuff. Well done. We will do our best not to give uh, or laugh at anybody who walks in a little bit late today. Um, There is grace. It abounds. Thank goodness. Um, Also... Just to let you know, first off, I love the fact that Jeannie not only was willing to share out of that, but the first thing she told me when we started talking about the storyboarding is, I'm not going to have to share this with anybody, am I? And I'm like, no. And the fact that you brought that up and like, you're the only person who's like, look at my life. I just, I love that. I love your willingness to be vulnerable in that. And that is one of the most uh, powerful exercise. It's a part of this weekend. It is not the whole weekend, but it is a key part of beginning to recognize the overarching kind of fingerprints of God and shaping your life. And some of the pain is actually some of the most fruitful seasons of growth. It's not fun. We would never choose to lean back into it, but it is a powerful, powerful part of how God shapes us into the men and women, the tools he wants to use to move the world forward. And so if you have not yet signed up, please do. If you have children and you go, we can't do it because our kids demand our attention, we have child care so you can come. If you are like, hey, I, I just have a lot going on. Yes, you do. And I know this is a sacrifice in time, but it is worth it. And, and because Jeff didn't let you know, I want to let you know if you want to get involved and you have not yet signed up for it, we sent you an email. If you didn't get the email, it's probably because we don't have your email address or we have the wrong one. Please just say on your connection card, I want to, to sign up for the missional pathway, mark that down, and we will, right at the beginning of the week, send you that link so you can sign up, okay? If finances are, are an issue, and we only are, it's $25 for the first two weekends, and that's just to cover the, the book and the, the food, if that is even an impediment to you, forget it. We'll take care of all of it. We would much rather invest in you and that you invest your time, then we need your money. It's not about that. We just want to know you're in. And sometimes our putting a little bit of, of skin in the game actually causes you to actually be in the game, which is why we're asking for that. But if finances are an issue, forget it. Okay. As you can tell uh, from hearing my voice, yes, it's true. I've finally gone through puberty. And so, and we're, we're trying, and you don't even realize how bad a cold is until you try to try to worship through a cold and you realize, am I like, am I Barry Manilow? Am I Barry White? Like, where am I going here? And you start having compassion on junior hires all of a sudden. Like, this is their reality. So uh, bear with me today as I bear uh, with this as well. We are in a series that we're calling Life on Purpose. And the the point of this series is simply to say, God... How have you uniquely shaped me? What have you made me to do in joining you in moving the world forward and taking the, the raw commodities, the, the, the resources that you have built into this world and the gifts and talents and passions that you have built into my own heart and begin to help you in bringing this world forward towards ultimately what we have to look forward to in eternity? with you. Um, toward that end, we, I just want to remind you of what this is all built off of. And this is, we've been looking so far at Genesis one and two in Genesis one. We learned that we were created in God's image to be his representatives, to be his partners in moving the world forward. 
that he created us to do what we're calling the, the um, cultural mandate. This is taken from Genesis 1.28, where God blessed them, his image bearers, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, he got a little bit more detailed of what he meant by subduing the earth and moving it forward. When he said, God put his image bearers in the garden to work it and to care for it. Now, when we hear those words, work it and care for it, we're not simply talking about a world that is complete and God is simply saying, I want you to be my stewards of it. You're going to be like the... um, the docent at the the museum where everything is in its place, everything is clean, people can look but don't touch, right? Where there's really no interaction. It's simply a celebration of what already is. That is not what it is. Yes, we are called to be stewards of his creation and protecting it and defending it against being used and abused, but we are also called to work it. And when we use that word work, the word is abad in Hebrew. It is translated quite often as work, but it is also translated in the Hebrew scriptures as worship and service, which is a really important thing for us to remember when we consider what our work is, because it does not simply mean that we take the raw materials and do whatever we want with them. Our work is actually an act of worship. It is a way in which we serve God and serve the rest of creation. And that's a powerful thing that we need to remember. That our work is an act of worship. And yet some of you are sitting there and in your mind you're thinking, that's great, Eric. But it's easy for you to say because you're a pastor. You work at a church. I work in IT. Or I'm a teacher. Or I'm a student still. Right? I play baseball. How How is that an act of worship? And, and what's really sad to me is that somewhere along the line of human history, we have taken this really big, robust, God-saturated view that comes out of Genesis 1 and 2 in which God created everything and said, have at it, join with me. And, and we've traded it for this kind of flat, anemic picture of the world that separates God stuff, spiritual stuff, stuff like going to church and reading our Bible and maybe going on a missions trip as some of us are going to do in a couple of weeks, going to Israel or, um, you know, going to a life group. Those kind of things get placed in our, our, our spiritual sacred, this, this matters to God box. And then everything else gets shoved into this, well, this is just normal, everyday, unspiritual stuff box. And, and this becomes our reality. And, and what I'm, I'm getting at here is there is an actual worldview that many of us carry around with us. And all of us have been affected by it in one way or the other. A lot of our worldviews have been infected with this idea that theologians refer to as the sacred-secular divide. And the sacred-secular divide does just that. It divides the world into sacred compartment and a secular or worldly compartment. And says, these things, the sacred stuff, matters way more to God than the 
secular, the worldly, the normal, everyday run-of-the-mill stuff, the going to work, the cleaning your home, the changing diapers, the, you know, sleeping, resting, playing, all of that kind of stuff. That's just, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of heaven and hell and eternity. And it cheapens. Because here's the real problem is when we look at the world and we look at what we do through this lens, only 3 to 5% of our time is spent in the sacred compartment. The other 95 to 97% of our time is spent over here. And many of you find yourself, after a long day of work, after a long day of giving yourself to your responsibilities and caring for things, you come crashing into bed at night, and in the back of your mind, even though you've done a long, satisfying day of work, you think to yourself, does this even really matter? Does this make a difference in, in you know, the grand scheme of things? And I want to talk about that today. Because I believe that the sacred-secular divide is built off of an erroneous belief that is snuck in. Because it's built off of bad theology, quite honestly. I mean, think about for just a moment the Hebrew language. There's about 5,000 words in the Hebrew language. There is not a single word for sacred in Hebrew. Not one. I'm sorry, not for sacred. For, For spiritual. The word spiritual does not show up in the Hebrew language. And you go, well, okay, so what, is that, what importance does that have? Is that because there is no spiritual stuff? And I would say, no, just the opposite. We see God's Spirit working in creation at the very beginning. God's Spirit hovered over the deep. And as He begins to speak the world into, you know, through Christ, the, the divine logos, the Spirit is moving and working and holding the world together. And then we see His image bearers, you and me, when God creates us over and against the rest of creation that He simply speaks into existence. When it comes to you and me, He gets down on his hands and his knees and he begins to take the dirt, the dust of the earth. And he forms the first image bearer and then he breathes his spirit, the breath of life into the lungs of his image bearers. So we are this divine synthesis of of corrupt earth and divine spirit. We are spiritual. And so when we say that there's no word for spiritual in the Hebrew language, it's not because they didn't view the world as spiritual, just the opposite. It's like fish. They don't need a word for wet. It's all they know. The Hebrews didn't need a word for spiritual because it was just simply reality. Everything is spiritual. So then how did we get to this point where spiritual, sacred stuff is over here and the rest of the world, the unspiritual stuff is over there. And we spend the majority of our time over here. It's because there are two streams of thinking. Two streams. One biblical and one from outside of the Bible that came more from pagan philosophy. But both of these streams together came together to carve a deep chasm that in our minds and in our society separates the spiritual from the unspiritual, the sacred from the secular. 
And I want to, I want to explain where they came from and how they influence us because sometimes in order for us to begin to undo a faulty thinking, we first need to understand where they came from. So if you will, just bear with me for a few minutes, more like 10, we're going to go on a little bit of a, a, a perhaps academic conversation on where these streams came from. So are you guys ready? Because context for me is key. Let's talk about the biblical one first. Do you remember what we talked about last week? For those of you who were here, we talked about the elephant in the room, the fall, right? That God had made us to join with him, to partner with him, but he also gave us free will so that we could choose whether or not to be in it. And Adam and Eve, our our first ancestors, chose not to trust God and to disobey. They ate the fruit. And in that moment, although they continued to be image bearers, their perception of themselves changed irrevocably. Although they were image bearers, they began to see themselves through almost this warped lens of, of sin and shame and guilt. And it was as if they were seeing themselves through a carnival mirror and it was warped and grotesque and they were embarrassed. And it, so the first casualty of the fall was their self image. The second casualty of the fall was their relationship with one another. They were so embarrassed about what they saw and the shame that they felt that they wanted nothing more than to cover their vulnerability And rather than being able to be naked and unashamed amongst one another, they hid from one another under a a carefully cultivated veneer of fig leaves. And then the third casualty of the fall, and, and, uh, you know, without a doubt, the most tragic one, was that they hid from the very one that had created them to be in relationship with them and to partner with him in moving the world forward. So they hid from God. And so this, from that moment forward, not only throughout the Old Testament, but also through the New Testament, we see this theme of how do fallen, sin-scarred human beings, image bearers, coexist with a God who is completely unsullied by sin. It's almost like asking the question, how does a shadow coexist with light because won't the light just destroy the shadow? And so this question of how do we have relationship with the God who created us to have relationship with him when we are sin scarred, um, how does that work? And that's where this idea of, uh, of, of a sacrificial system of animals taking the place got introduced to the Hebrew mind. It's also where this idea of there are clean things and unclean things. There are certain things that are going to be set apart. The word is either sanctified or holy. Both of those words speak to this idea of setting something apart from the common to be used in the worship of God. And they have lots of these things. Cups, bowls, certain types of incense, certain... um, places, right? You have the tabernacle at first, and then when they kind of find the land and they get settled, then they build the temple. And this is a holy place where you come to interact with God as if he's not somehow elsewhere, that you can't interact with him out there. You have to come to this building, this this sacred place. And even within that sacred place, you have the holy area where the, the candelabra and all these other kind of things are, where the sacred bread is that reminds them that all of the tribes are, are, are cared for by God. And then you go past this curtain into the holy of holies, the most uh, intimately, the most intimate sacred place in all of Israel, where the Ark of the Covenant 
resided, which was supposed to be God's throne on earth. And again, the mindset that we have to go here into this holy place. And in order to do that, remember, we're, we're covered in our sin and our shame. We can't just walk in there and treat it as common because it's not. We want to be we want to treat it differently. And so they would go through all of these ritualistic purification processes. There was the animal sacrifice to clean them from their blood guilt. There was ritual washings that they would do to symbolize the cleansing. There was, there were prayers that they would do and to make, you know, to, there were the things that they would confess in order to make themselves ceremonially clean. And in fact, only one person in all of Israel was ever allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. That was the high priest. And then only one time a year to make atonement, to, to try to cleanse the rest of Israel from their sins. And he would even go in with a rope tied around his waist and, and bells on his ankles when he went in there to worship and pray. Because if God struck him dead, he's a holy God. We're an unclean people. If God strikes him dead, or, or he's just being quiet and they're going, hey, are you alive? And he can shake his heel. Oh, we hear the bell. Okay, he's still alive. Or you don't hear the bell, better grab the rope and drag him out of there. Right? That was the level of, of, of honor and, and treatment of the holy place. Which is why... When we get to the New Testament and Jesus shows up on the scene and he's interacting with the Pharisees, the Pharisees are hyper fixated on clean, unclean. Because there's all these other things that are common. You don't treat the holy stuff as common. The holy stuff is put aside to worship God. And so they were hyper fixated on sacrificial system. They were hyper fixated on ceremonial washings. And other things like that. And it's why they got into such great conflict with Jesus. Because what they didn't realize is that when Jesus showed up on the scene. And the whole purpose of the cross was to completely throw out that old system. That old covenant that required only some things to be separated as holy. And other things to be treated as common. Jesus completely upturned that. He said, I, through one sacrifice, the, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, that through one sacrifice, Jesus himself, God has made perfect forever those who are in the process of being made holy, those who are being set apart for him, those whose lives are more and more beginning to be a reflection of the heart of the Father. We are all in process, every single one of us. But because of Christ's sacrifice, even though we are all in process of being a better reflection of his heart, Jesus has made us clean. Jesus has dealt with our sin in such a way that we can now come back into the presence of the Father without fear that he will strike us dead. That's good news. But the Pharisees didn't get that. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand that a new covenant was being put into place. And so they railed against Jesus. In particular about these clean, unclean kind of things. <clears throat> Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? 
right? Why don't they go through, and I'm not just talking about to get the germs off. We're talking about the ceremonially, ceremonial cleansing. Why don't they do that? You guys don't get it, do you? Or they go to Jesus' uh, disciples and say, hey, why on earth is your rabbi eating with sinners and tax collectors? Doesn't he realize that to even eat with a Gentile will make him ceremonially unclean? And then he won't be able to worship God in the temple without going through all the ritual purifications? Does he not care? And they're like, uh-uh. And Jesus is like, hey, it's, you don't understand. I've come to reach the sinner. It's the sinners that need, you know, saving. Not, not those who are already saved or whatever. You know, it's like you guys have completely missed the point. It's not just about congregating with people who are like-minded. It's about reaching those are hurting, reaching those who are still steeped in their sin and inviting them, calling them out of that. Jesus went so far because there was certain skin diseases in, in the book of Leviticus that if you touched somebody with a skin disease, you would become ceremonially unclean. One of the most beautiful moments in all of the New Testament is when Jesus is walking along the side of a road and here's a guy with leprosy. He says, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes over and he could have easily just said, be clean. And the guy's skin disease would disappear. He did that for other people. But in this particular instance, he reaches out and he puts his hand on that man's shoulders. And he says, be clean. He didn't need to touch him, but he chose to touch him. And I think he did that in part, again, because the clean, unclean, Laws were no longer in effect, but he also did it because what this man needed was to be reminded that he was not only healthy, but he was a human being. And he needed to be reminded of his value and his dignity. And that's what Jesus gave him. So Jesus completely and irrevocably changed the clean, unclean laws, but the, the, the religious leaders and even for the Israelites, those coming out of Judaism, they struggled against it. They pushed against it. Jesus was viewed as a dangerous rebel who didn't care about the law because of the way he flaunted it, they felt. And what he was doing is he was saying, hey, listen, those old legal ways of approaching God are defunct. You don't need them any longer. And we see even in the new, t- in the, in the early church, after Jesus has gone to be with the Father and prepare a place and the church begins to go, we see a radical change in the way that they shared the gospel. Because it used to be that the only place you could go to read scripture would be to the synagogue, the holy place. And there only the rabbi would be able to read the scripture. But now suddenly we see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ being taken from the synagogue and out into the commonplaces, into the marketplace, out into the the, the streets, into people's homes. And it wasn't just the Jews who were hearing the good news and being given the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. It was the unclean Gentiles who were being told, God loves you and Jesus died for you as well. This was radical. Interestingly, it was that loosening of the gospel and allowing the Gentiles to come in that ultimately introduced or invited the second stream of this sacred secular divide. The second stream that helped carve it deeply came from the Gentiles because they had been not steeped in the scriptures 
as the Jews had, they had been steeped in Greek philosophy. And about 400 years before Jesus was born, there was a guy named Plato who um, was either popularized or invented this philosophy that had shaped Gentile thinking. And the philosophy went something like this. It's called Platonic dualism. And this is what it said, that there are two realities, two worlds that are happening at the same time. Sounds true. One of them is physical. The other one is spiritual. The physical realm is what the things you can taste, touch, see, study. The spiritual realm is something that we can only fathom in our minds right now. But since we have an idea of it, 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 it must exist. The, the physical realm, the physical world is corrupt and fallen. We see that all over the place. We see brokenness. We see sickness. We see pain. We see anger. We see division. This is fallen. This is corrupt. The spiritual world, on the other hand, is perfect. It's unsullied by this. And the goal of human life is to go from here to here. Well, how does that happen? The only way that we know is to shuffle off this mortal coil. And ultimately, when we die, our spirit is released and it goes to this pure, let's call it heaven. This place where now as spiritual, disembodied spirits, we can enjoy the perfection that we were created for. Now, this thinking of a separation between the created world and the spiritual world would have actually flown in the face of Jewish thought because the Jewish Christians were raised with a a Genesis 1 through 2 worldview with a recognition that although God's world has been corrupted by sin, it's still good. I just had a junior high moment there. That was awesome. Voices cracking all over the place. That although the world is corrupted, it's still good. It's still God's creation. They were not looking to escape the world. I'm talking about the Jews right now. The, The Jews and then the Jewish Christians were not looking to escape this world. They were looking forward to resurrection. A literal tangible dirt under your fingernails resurrection and the redemption of God's creation. That's what they were looking forward to rather than the goal of life is to get the heck out of here and go spend eternity as disembodied voices or spirits playing harps in the clouds. But because the the Greek philosophy was so powerfully There's lots of reasons why it began to take heart and take root, but it ultimately took root so much that you fast forward to the Middle Ages and we see a complete embrace of that Greek thinking within the church. It got so bad, in fact, that at its zenith during, during the Middle Ages, you had the church declaring to everybody that the only place that you could actually worship God and serve him was within the church as a building. The only way to do it, the only way to live out your vocation, vocatio is the, is the Latin word for your calling that God has for your life. The only place it can be expressed 
is within the church. So if you want to fulfill your vocation, become a priest, become a nun, join one of the monastic orders. Otherwise, you can just give yourself to a job that doesn't make any difference eternally. And you can work all day at that. It won't make any difference. And then when you get off of work, then you can come and you can actually do the work that matters. And at this point, this big, beautiful, robust, God-saturated worldview that all work that we do in moving the world forward is an act of worship and is joining God in it got shrunk down to a couple of hundred people sitting in pews, singing songs of worship to God within these beautiful, ornate buildings, while meanwhile, the world outside disintegrated. And people died far away from God. And then in the 16th century, something happened that was positive in this conversation. There was a a group of people led by a guy named Martin Luther and some other reformers who began to say, hold on a second. We think that we've missed the point here a little bit because they, they would do radical things like they would take statements like first Peter. Can we, can we throw first Peter two up there? They would take this statement from first Peter two. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. They would take statements in scripture like that. And then they would turn around and say audacious things like you're a priest, you're a minister, You are holy, and God has called you to represent him. This is, this is, this cannot be, because remember, this is the 16th century. There are already people called priests. It's an official title. We're the only ones who get it. We got the credentials. We got the buildings. We got the power. This is not acceptable. And they took offense that the great unwashed the unclean beyond the walls of the buildings and the holy places could be called priests, could be called ministers. But that is exactly what the reformers were saying. And that is exactly the heart of what we see play out throughout Scripture is that we are all ministers, not just pastors, not just people who are paid by the church. We are all ministers. And and by the way, before you go, I'm not really comfortable with that. Let me define my term for you. When I use the word minister, that word simply means service. It is not some super special pastors only term. It simply means that you are serving God by serving other people. Does that make sense? So in light of that, you and I and all of us are ministers. So if you're a school teacher, yes, you are a school teacher and you're a minister. And your ministry may be raising up the next generation by teaching them how to think. If you're a stay-at-home mom, yeah, 
you're a stay-at-home mom raising kids and you are a minister and your ministry, at least part of it, may be pouring into those children and unfolding them into the adults that God has created them to be that can then participate in moving the world forward. You're an IT specialist. Yeah, you do IT and you're a minister. And your ministry may actually be helping this secular company keep its, you know, be protected from people on the outside attacking it and being a representative in that place to the people that you work with. You're retired. Yes, you're retired, but you're still a minister because you may give up your occupation and your paycheck, but you never retire from being useful and and by God. God can still use you if you are willing to allow him to do so. You are a student. Yes, you're a student and you are a minister. And God is using you on that school campus to live in such a way that is countercultural to the way that other kids treat kids. It's, it's awful. I've got a seven and a 10 year old going to public school right now. It is awful the way kids speak to one another and treat one another. So the ways we interact with our fellow students is an act of ministry, especially when we're standing counterculturally. Do you remember what Jesus talked or told his disciples about service, the things he taught them? First off, he said, listen, the son of man, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He modeled that for them. And then he turned around and he said, and you just remember this. You want to be great? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is what? The servant of all. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Some of us do our service or do some of our service, some of our ministry within the community of the church. Some of us are paid. Others of us, you do it for, for no pay whatsoever other than the fact that you feel led by God to do it. And so we have people who are ministering by, by welcoming you when you walk in the door and making sure that there are actual stuff in the seat backs in front of you. You have people who are ministering both on stage, but as well as back there where you will never see them, but they're making sure that you can hear my voice and follow along with the worship songs. There are people right now ministering across the street, loving on our children, pouring into them, reminding them how valuable they are and and sharing with them the good news. As, As they join us parents in pouring into our kids, they are not the replacement of us parents as the spiritual leaders of caring for and and training up our kids, but they join with us in that endeavor. So there's a lot of people, and that's just a couple. I mean, there's the life groups, the, the, the number one ministry of our church, the number one place where we are growing is led completely by volunteers. And that is far more important than what happens here on Sunday morning, in my opinion. So there's a lot of people who minister within the church, but the vast majority of you are doing your ministry outside of the church. As you go to work, as you go to school, as you go about your business, as you are retired, but you you people who, who are retired right now are more busy than just about anybody that I know, right? You are doing a lot of things and the things that you give yourself to do, and I apologize, by the way, for calling you you people. 
but you are, you are busy. The things that you do may happen outside of a church building, but they are certainly not happening outside of the kingdom of God. And when we begin to see the world from God's perspective, from the Bible's perspective, rather than the world's perspective, we begin to recognize that there are no compartments and that you are ministering, that you are doing ministry. And before we, we, we kind of start getting down, yeah, but it's manual labor, right? This doesn't matter. I'm digging ditches. I'm changing tires. I'm, you know, I'm not changing the world. I'm changing diapers, for God's sake. Before we start getting down on working with our hands and manual labors, if that doesn't matter, let's just keep this in mind. Jesus, the Christ, God's son, spent the first 20 or so years of his life, even up to 30 years, following his father, earthly father in the family business, which was, we call it carpentry, but really in the, in the Greek word, it's tekton, which just means worker. And when you start to think about where Jesus was working, which was, uh, you know, uh, the Palestinian area by, by Galilee that has very few trees, which means that only the really wealthy got to, to have things made out of wood. Most of the buildings were made out of black basalt rock, which meant that Jesus was closer probably to a construction worker. He was closer to a general contractor building things of stone and wood. But the point I'm making is that Jesus got physical. He got calluses. He broke out in a sweat. He stunk. I'm sure he smelled. I don't think that he was immune to that because he took our frailties upon himself. And he spent at minimum 20 years as a carpenter, as a, as a worker, as this laborer, which is at least six times longer than he spent in his three-year ministry. If manual labor was not below the Messiah, far be it below us to work. Or take Paul. Here's a guy who, was, who wrote half the New Testament, was called to share the good news with the Gentiles. But he made his living by making tents, working with his hands. He was an artisan. And it was the work of making tents that actually got him into proximity to a lot of the people he was ministering to, including this, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila, Priscilla, this, this couple who were Greek, who were also tent makers who were discipled by Paul and then became pillars of the church in Corinth. And when there was a, a well-known evangelist who began to share his best rendition of the gospel, but it was completely devoid of the Holy Spirit, it was this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who said, hey, come here, come into our home. And they shared a fuller, richer understanding of the gospel message and trained him up. And all of this came because Paul was willing to work with his hands and pay his way. It got him into proximity. So if it's not below Paul, a guy who wrote half the New Testament, far be it for us to say it's below us to minister beyond the walls of the church. And let me just make one more clarification. When we talk about the church, we never, ever are talking about a building. That's how it's often interpreted, that this is the church, here's the steeple, open it up, and here's all the people, right? 
I guess that's how it goes. But remember this. We are the church. It's the people inside that are the church. This is just the box. And one of the goals I see throughout Scripture is God calling His people to go outside of the box to reach, to seek, and save the lost. We cannot simply sit secure and safe in the church and wait for the world to come to us because they will not come to us. We are called to... What, what, what is the Great Commission? How does it start? To go. To go make disciples of all nations. Not just our neighbors, although it starts there. And it starts with our, our, our fellow students. And it starts with our fellow workers. But to go beyond our comfort zone. And as we go, to make disciples. And how do we do that? <clears throat> we introduce them to Jesus. And we invite them to make a decision to follow him. Which is symbolized... Through getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by discipling them, by teaching them to obey everything that we have learned. That was the Great Commission. And I just want to say one thing that's really important for us to recognize. The Great Commission does not stand in opposition with the cultural mandate of Genesis 1. They are not two separate and opposite commissions where we just get to pick one. In fact, as Christ followers, we are called to do the Great Commission as we are doing the cultural mandate of moving the world forward. And even though Plato would probably disagree with what I'm about to say to you, and that's okay. He was a Greek philosopher. He was not a Christ follower. Plato would say, you know what, the Great Commission, that sounds good because the point of the Great Commission is to help people wake up to the fact that they're in the wrong world and they just need to get out of this world. They need to go to the spiritual world. And I would say, uh-uh. That's not what the Great Commission is about. The Great Commission is about waking people up to the idea that there is a much greater call on their life than simply to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It is helping people pick their eyes up from their own teeny tiny story that they're writing in which they are the central character and helping them wake up to there is a much bigger, grander, epic story in which God is the central character and we get to be his partners in moving the world forward. And it is a story of redemption. It is a story of love. And we get to be part of it. And so as we go about our work, we get to do both the Great Commission and the, the cultural mandate at the same time. So how does that work? How do we do that? You go to work, whether it's being a teacher or as a construction worker or as an IT specialist or as a nurse or as an attorney. Yes, even attorney or, or as an IRS agent. Let's just go ahead and, you know, go all the way to the bottom. I'm joking. No, I was joking. I'm going to get audited for that comment right there. Doesn't matter. Or a car salesman, Fippers, he can use them. And why are you, that hurts him. No, I'm joking. You look at whatever you do and you say, God, I am going to worship you through being the very best car salesman, attorney, um, business owner, grandparent, parent, 
student that I can be. My doing my work with excellence is an act of worship and it is an act of service to the world. And as I do that, I am going to allow your Holy Spirit to work on my heart that I might reflect your heart in the workplace. And even when things go awry, even when I get passed over for that promotion, even when I don't get the sale because somebody else snaked it from me, they sold a better hearse than the one I had, right? Even when the world doesn't work the way I want, even then I will worship you. And by the attitude of my heart, they will say, you know, we mock you, we ridicule you, we say that you're small-minded, that you use God as a crutch, but there's something different about you and I want to know what it is. And the way you live your life in your workplace helps you to ultimately introduce people to God or to at least plant seeds while we worship him through our work. Does this make sense? There are a lot of people beyond the walls of this place that would never think to step foot in here. And you have the ability to reach them far better than Jeff or I do. So, how does God reach mothers over at Harper Park who gather, you know, every day to, to let their kids play? He doesn't send Jeff or I. That would be creepy. He sends some of his daughters who are mothers themselves. Or he sends some people who have given their heart to raising another's child and loving them and pouring their lives into them. He sends them to the park to interact with moms and to love them where they're at. And how does God reach students? It's secular schools. The state has said we can't step foot on there as a pastor wanting to proclaim Jesus Christ. But that's okay because the church is already there in our students and in our teachers. And the way that you interact with your fellow students and the way that you go about your teaching is a declaration of the gospel. Even if you never say a word, even if you never utter the name Jesus Christ, the way you live is a testimony to him. How does God reach people in the marketplace, in businesses? He takes some of his kids who are business owners and he says, Do the things that you have said you are going to do with integrity, with responsibility. Bless people through your business. And in so doing, your testimony will be far more powerful than any message I can preach up here. People are coming to Christ through the marketplace, through businesses. How does God reach your boss who's a jerk? He sends some of his daughters and sons who are support staff to love them in spite of their own, you know, faults and to represent Jesus even in the way that they support and serve and oftentimes lead through their service, right? This is how God does it. And how does God reach the kid who has no parent on your block? You may call some of you grandparents whose own kids have have left and have maybe even moved across the country and you don't get a lot of time with your grandkids, but he's broken your heart for that one kid down the street. And just being available, that is how he reaches that kid or that family. 
I'm so grateful for the preschool we have here. Because it is first and foremost a preschool, but it, it, it is being able to pour into children and by default pour into their families the good news that Jesus Christ loves them. The preschool that meets in this room and across the street throughout the week is by far our best ministry of this church in the sense that they are reaching people that quite often don't even attend this church or don't attend any church. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for those teachers like David Stack and others who have given their hearts to it. So here's the point this morning. There are no boxes. There are no categories. There is no sacred space and secular space. We are the church. This isn't the church. And when you leave here today, you get to go be the church beyond the walls of this place. And so long as you are giving your heart to what God has placed in front of you to do, so long as you are allowing His Holy Spirit to enable you, you are ministering, even if it's within the secular workspace. You're a minister. Don't let anybody think, don't let anybody make you think otherwise. You do not need to work for the church to work for God. Because he's called you to be his co-laborer, his partner in moving this world forward. And you can do it better than we can in a lot of instances. So Pete, why don't you come on forward? And let me just pray for us. Father God, I am so grateful that you let us imperfect image bearers as we are. Lots of flaws, lots of things that we don't do well. Lots of things that we're going to misunderstand and lots of things that we're going to, to kind of fall flat on our face and misrepresent you from time to time. And yet you allow us to represent you anyway. You know what each of us has on our plate right now. You know what you've placed before each of us. May we worship you through the work of our hands. And may we represent you as we go along our way and the people you place into our, our sphere of influence, may you give us the wisdom to know how to love them as you love them so that ultimately your kingdom comes and your will is done in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in this nation and in this world just as it is in heaven. Jesus, in your name, amen. Let's worship together.